Biden's blowout budget and Redfield's bombshell testimony. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by Philip, Phil Klein, Madeline, Maddie Kearns, and the notorious MBD, Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsor of this episode is ExpressVPN. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. And please, please excuse my voice. I've been fighting a cold this week. I'm in that phase of the cold where I'm actually feeling a little better, but sounding a little worse. Oh, the bitter irony. So Phil Klein, we got this Biden budget, which of course no one expects to pass. That's not the point of it. It's obviously a political messaging document over $4 trillion of tax increases, a purported $3 trillion in savings over 10 years, although they're, they're playing with the, the so-called baseline to get that figure. What do you make of it? Well, I mean, I think the first thing is it's important to look at this as a political messaging document, which is that we have a, two huge fights coming up over spending levels and over raising the debt ceiling. And this is Biden's sort of opening salvo. Um, and what it shows is that Biden wants to message that there are responsible ways to cut the deficit by asking the super rich to pay a little bit more uh, and that Republicans just want to hold the economy hostage to uh, protect billionaires. And as a political messaging strategy, it might work, particularly given the own internal divisions of Republicans and their inability to, to rally around sort of serious uh, budget ideas for quite a while. Um, with that said, if we look at it in terms of does it address our fiscal problems, it's a complete catastrophe. I mean, it, basically what it does is if you compare it, the numbers uh, to the most recent CBO report and projections, uh, compared to the projections, it would raise taxes by five and a half trillion dollars and it would boost spending by over $2 trillion. Um, and though it claims $3 trillion of deficit reduction, it's important to understand that the baselines have been completely blown up by COVID and by- what, what, what's, a, what's a baseline for the uninitiated? Well, basically the way that we spend money in Washington is that the Congressional Budget Office says, here's what we expect. If, if no policies change at all, um, everything under the books works out as we expect. Then we expect over the next 10 years, each year in the next 10 years, we're going to spend X amount of money each year. This is what the deficit's going to be like. This is how much taxes are. And then you put out a budget, and the budget is compared to those numbers, what it would be like compared to the status quo. And the problem is that the, the sort of status quo has um, changed dramatically as a result of COVID 
and Biden's policies. I mean, I, I was just looking back before this podcast on the baseline that the projections that CBO had right before the COVID lockdowns, before any sort of COVID spending. And basically, it, you know, they looked at what the projections would be like for 2020 to 2030. And what happened is that essentially, if you compare those to the Biden budget, it's about $17.5 trillion more in the Biden budget, right? If that were the baseline before we started the COVID stuff. And so basically, the problem that we have is after World War II, the government um, realized the emergency was over and we drastically reduced spending uh, to more normal levels. But what's happening happened under Biden is that Biden has tried to bake in the inflated emergency spending of the COVID uh, years and then make it become the new normal and build on it. So um, what we have is that a situation in which um, we have a completely unsustainable debt situation. So before, during World War II was the only time in which the amount of debt that we had was more than the annual output of the economy, uh, more than 100% of GDP. Um, that happens in every year of the Biden budget throughout the 10-year projection period. So this is not a serious effort uh, to do anything. It's basically, here's trillions of dollars of tax increases, rolling back Trump tax cuts, taxing small businesses. He raises an Obamacare tax that was originally intended to finance Obamacare and claims that this is his big plan to shore up Medicare's finances. It's just not a serious effort. If, if we adopted the Biden budget, we'd be looking at a fiscal catastrophe. Um, but again, um, given the Republican alternative, if they don't offer a serious alternative, it could be effective as a political tactic. So MBD, is there anything in this budget for a right-wing populist? Any, anything you can like? I mean, not really. Um, you know, there's there's some... It, that those parts of it haven't really been specified. Um, you know, there's there's talk of you know trying to attract more in, in investment or more subsidies for you know job creating subsidies. But again, most of this is just raising the the uh, the the budgets that are already existing um, and the emergency budgets that we've set in the past couple of years. Um, also, the the you know the tax increases I don't think are really fit with the uh, you know national populism narrative. I mean, this isn't um, anything like giving families tons of help uh, that has been proposed on the right. Uh, it's more about soaking the rich, and um, you know th there's a kind of inherent constraint, uh, you know, almost like a naturally occurring constraint on American budgeting, which is that no matter what you do with the tax rates in general, uh, you know, the federal government receives 16 to 19% of GDP back in federal tax receipts. 
like, and, and that you basically bounce between that number, uh, those numbers going back six decades. Uh, and there's not much you can do about it. Um, so when you decide you're going to start spending at 26% of GDP, uh, you are going to create a fiscal crisis in a pretty short amount of time. I mean, the United States is, is blessed to have uh, the best credit in the world, which is basically a, a kind of endorsement of our, our military supremacy. Um, but you, there are limits to that as well, right? I mean, there's, there's, there are limits to how much debt we will. Um, we, so we so is, a, um, is a debt crisis how high on the list of uh, dire MBD scenarios well, and things so to worry about? My, 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 I, I have, you know, I have bounced back and forth. I mean, uh, on this my whole life, because, you know, there was a time during the early Obama years when we were coming out of the financial crisis, I would have sworn to you then that, you know, oh, we're going to face inflation. Oh, you know, this is unsustainable. And I was wrong. Uh, we had more fiscal running room and, and I needed to adjust my view for precisely this uh, scenario where we're the wor world's reserve currency. And so we do play by a slightly different law of physics than everyone else in the world. But I am worried about the debt thing in the context of the broader geopolitical scene, right? Which is that, um, you know, I don't want us to look like Britain in the 1930s, where you have hugely excessive debt at precisely the moment you're facing your worst uh, military challenge. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna mention the British because for the longest time, you know, in the Napoleonic Wars and all this, everyone's like, oh, this is totally unsustainable their level of debt, but they had such a uh, sophisticated financial system and robust economy that it was sustainable. But but eventually, you do. Hit a wall, you know. That's and that's obviously. Yeah, and the, that's and the wall is usually is usually in war, right? I mean, because that's when you have to go all out, and and in that case, there was a player on the sidelines, the United States, that had the capacity to overtake, right? So you know, had the capacity to take over the financial leadership of the world. Had the, um, I mean, FDR made the <laughs> made the Royals transfer the gold. To the to the U.S. I mean, uh, during World War II, I mean, going the gold going all the way back to the Spanish ducats the the British crown had stolen. So, um, you know, and and when Britain went broke at the end of World War II, it went really broke. I mean, uh, and and experienced real downward mobility and a giant lurch towards socialism, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yes. So. That that's that's the, you know I don't think we're there yet, um, uh, but I'd be uh, you know uh, it's it's it, the comparisons are not great ones right now. Maddie, so I, I know yesterday you you broke out your green eye shades when examining this budget line by line very closely. So what what's your take? <laughs> well, thanks for that uh, sound. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, economics isn't really my area, and I, I trust my colleagues Phil and, and others to sort of get into the into the weeds with it. But I do understand why this is smart politics. I mean, the the reality is that the percentage of people who um, are negatively, immediately, and obviously negatively affected by this, i.e., have to pay more tax, is way smaller than the percentage of people who 
would be attracted by all the entitlements on offer, the universal pre-K, childcare, paid family leave, housing, uh, Biden promising the moon. And it, it reminds me of that moment in the pandemic where the government was just sending, unscrupulously sending everybody checks. Uh, I obviously was not a beneficiary of this, not, not being a citizen, but it wasn't even means tested. People were getting these checks from the government during the pandemic. And everyone was like, isn't this great? This is amazing. And I'm thinking of like sort of... Uh, my college age friends were like, this is great, we just got $1,000. And I'm thinking, no, you're trying to make the case that actually, if everybody does this, then overall, in the long term, we're going to be worse off. This is a very hard argument to make because you're pushing against human nature, which is immediate gratification, a, a difficulty with abstract long-term consequences and this is why this is why it's attractive right is that oh yeah tax tax the rich uh, spend more seems seems like simple enough um and that's about as glib as it gets and that's about as glib as it needs to be because most people aren't going to look at it any deeper than that so obviously atrocious uh, economic policy and 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 it didn't even a lot of this stuff didn't even pass in democratic majorities so it's you know we, we know it's not going to succeed in the republican house but as a political strategy actually not a bad one so that's a segue to the exit question to you phil klein who will win the message war over um the, the federal budget this year joe biden or house republicans i think joe biden um if nothing else because Democrats, I think Democrats are more united on this than Republicans are. Um, I think that eventually what happens is um, McCarthy is forced to pass some sort of bill to raise the debt ceiling and some sort of budget, um, uh, some sort of uh, continuing resolution spending bill with uh, Democratic votes. Um, even if a lot of Republicans vote against it. But uh, I think that this, I think that uh, Biden's going to win this. MBD. I think Biden's going to win this because, you know, the, the tax increases aren't going to be passed. Um, so people won't feel that pinch. Um, and they're, and they're not, not unpopular. I assume. They're not, and they're not unpopular. And, you can he can just run on you know these are the good things I would have done for you, and also there you know there's an element where they're they're promising, uh, implausibly in my view, an amount of debt reduction that would also be popular but is totally notional. So mm -hmm. it is like, I mean, it is sort of like running on Santa's wish list. So the advantage goes to the White House, Maddie. Yeah, definitely the White House. Uh, who, who doesn't like the idea of more free stuff? Yeah, I think where Republicans have the advantage is totally in the abstract, we're spending too much money. Then when it gets down to hard tax, how are you going to spend less money? Then it becomes much more difficult. And at least one of the major forums this year for, for this fight is going to be the debt limit. And Phil's absolutely right. Republicans are going to be divided. You know, I'd imagine 80% of the Republican House caucus will be united when they settle on what their ask is, which they don't know yet. But then you'll have um, the, the, a couple members on the, the rightmost flank saying, no, we're not, we're not raising the debt limit no matter what. And then some, some members, I imagine, over on the other flank saying that this is foolish, we shouldn't fight on this ground. And then half the, the Senate Republicans will be, be saying this is foolish, we shouldn't fight on this ground. So it just, it's just inherently 
a dynamic that that favors the White House. So with that, let's hear from our sponsor of this episode, ExpressVPN. Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like having a first aid kit but not keeping it stocked up. Most of the time, you'll probably be fine. But what if suddenly you get into a horrible accident and there's nothing in your first aid kit to help you stop the bleeding? Every time you connect to an unencrypted network, cafes, hotels, airports, any hacker on the same network can gain access to your personal data, passwords, financial details, etc. It doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack someone. Just some cheap hardware is needed. A smart 12-year-old could do it. And your data is valuable. Hackers can make up to $1,000 per person selling personal info on the dark web. ExpressVPN creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so hackers can't steal your sensitive data. It'd take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption, which is kind of a long time and hopefully longer than you're spending on any airport layover. All you need to do is fire up the app and click one button to get protected, and it works on all devices, phones, laptops, tablets, and more, so you can stay secure on the go. So if you're a discerning user of technology and the internet, ExpressVPN is definitely for you. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash editors. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash editors. And you can get an extra three months free expressvpn.com slash editors. Please check it out. So MBD, we've had these, um, we're, we're not uh, very sanguine about the debt limit fight, but Republicans have been having these uh, hearings that have generated some uh, interesting items and interesting testimony. We had Robert Redfield yesterday, former CDC director, you know, he's no um, schlub just in off the, the street or some crank they picked off of uh, uh, Twitter saying that he believes, and this, this, isn't necessarily new. I mean, he, he's been saying this for a while, that he believes the virus is most likely engineered in a lab. He has technical reasons that I couldn't quite follow for um, saying that. You know, some some link in the chain of this virus he, he doesn't think uh, would, would have naturally evolved and is kind of suspicious. And speaking of suspicious behavior, says he was cut out by Fauci in the discussions with various other experts about what the origins of this might be. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was just explosive to hear, I mean, uh, Redfield is a virologist himself, and it, it's just explosive to hear him say, quote, that they wanted a single narrative, and he had a different view, and so therefore he was cut out uh, by Dr. Fauci and others. Um, then he went on to criticize Fauci uh, for the, the papers Fauci endorsed uh, during this time that claimed, um, you know, that the, the overwhelming amount of evidence was for natural emergence, uh, which Fauci has only backed away from years later. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the, the most explosive and the most interesting part of the testimony was he was asked... Uh, you know, did American taxpayer dollars fund the gain of research uh, that created this virus? And Redfield said, I think it did, not only from NIH, but from the State Department, USAID, and Department of Defense. Um, so, and, so what? <clears throat> Sorry, go ahead. 
Well, this is this raises a lot of interesting things. I mean, this is something that you know guys on the Trump economic side uh, team have been claiming, and and we aired those claims in in a piece of National Review that you know in some ways Dr. Fauci is the author of the virus, right? Because he and Collins supported this kind of research and made maneuvers around Obama's ban on funding this kind of research. Uh, and that's why it was happening in China, right? <laughs> Rather than in the Carolinas. Yeah. So, so was it due to the, the, and this is a point you raised in our, our Twitter thread about topics prior to coming on. So what's this do to the attribution debate? You know, at, at the moment it's like, it's China. If it came from a lab, it was, it was one of the worst cover-ups you possibly can imagine. Why are we forgiving this regime, having anything to do with this regime? And then, then you have this wrinkle. Well, actually, it'd be the U.S. government uh, somewhat responsible as, as well. Obviously, couldn't be foreseen and didn't, well, I was going to say didn't cover it up, but, you know, there are people involved in a, in a kind of cover-up here in the U.S. if, if this is true. So, so, so what, what do we do with that? If, if it's true. I mean, what do we do? I mean, <laughs> I mean, which, which part of me are you asking? Are you asking the, <laughs> the responsible guy who wants to stay out of prison or, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, like, like I've said before, I mean, self-respecting countries string people from lampposts from time to time. Um, and we've got a few names that, but, um, no, listen, this is, uh, China has been blaming the United States, you know, uh, occasionally for COVID-19 saying that, oh, it came from New York somehow or, or it came from this. And, and so, uh, you know, if the United, if figures in the United States Congress and uh, in CDC are blaming Fauci um, in some ways, yeah, that does help China avoid because th they won't tell the whole story to their people. They'll just quote the self um you know in the the incrimination statements from the united states but the fact is i mean we we really do have to know what happened here i mean because uh you know if if you're facing a once in a century pandemic um but you've actually just faced one that was man-made well maybe you're you know maybe the once in the century natural pandemic is still on its way um and of course there's different regulatory things you would do i mean completely different i mean we we've we've put pressure on china to close up and regulate wet markets before and we've seen them do it and then do it half-heartedly and then kind of stop doing it well you know if if it was a natural emergence from a wet market you know you would do you would put pressure on them to do that again and if it was a lab leak you would tighten up the lab or you would stop funding this kind of research at Chinese labs or maybe any labs across the entire planet. Um, or you might seek out, you know, international compacts to forbid this type of research because of the, the likelihood of uh, a spillover uh, or a leak. Um, so it's, it's a really important question and um, it would be, uh, I mean, I think it would be the story of the of the century if if Dr. Fauci was directly responsible for the virus. I mean, it, because he I became the hero for so many during the virus. So, Phil, do you have any take on what the likelihoods here are of of uh, Redfield being right or Fauci being right or 
somewhere in between? I mean, there is no way. I mean, the problem is that basically the the people who would know the best and who would be able to confirm whether Redfield is right are basically the Chinese government and Fauci and his allies. <laughs> so it's sort of, in some sense, the the sort of most cynical conspiracy theories it can't really be refuted or confirmed because if they're true, the people who um, are in a position to let us know won't let that information come out. And if it's false, then nobody's going to believe what Fauci and the Chinese communists have to say. Um, I mean, in terms of culpability, I think that we have to be clear on a few things is that we know that Fauci did fund some research at Wuhan. We just don't know if it was the same research that might have um, created COVID because there's a lot of different kind of viral research. Not all of it is necessarily the same thing that could have um, created COVID. And the other thing is that even if the U.S. did fund this, it still doesn't take it out of the hands of China, conceivably, you know, because if they, because at the end of the day, if it leaked from the lab, then it was Chinese incompetence and inability to secure the lab um, and perform gain of function research in a safe way that allowed it uh, to escape. So it's not, it wouldn't be as cleanly China's fault, but it would be, um, it would be, uh, you know, there would at least be uh, culpability, you know, there would at least be some, you know, it, it still would be primarily China's fault, even if there were some involvement in the U.S. I think the problem is, for Fauci and others, is that basically, um, once you've lied about some things, people start to believe anything. So there, you know, the, the worst element of the, you know, the conspiracy is that you know, Fauci um, and others did an end around the ban of this research and outsourced it to China. And then this create, China used this to create some sort of bioweapon, right? Um, but once you, which sounds crazy in, in March 2020, um, but once you show that, okay, the lab leak theory makes a lot more sense, has a lot more circumstantial evidence to support it, um, then, and people start backing off and sort of loosening up their firm denials that it could have possibly been a lab leak then you start to question the whole thing, right? So there, there could be a bit of truth in the middle that there was a lab leak sort of stuff. Fauci thinks, oh boy, even though I didn't fund this specific type of research, once it gets out that we were funding some stuff in the Wuhan lab, people are going to assume I did it. So let's, you know, p like push the zoological transmission theory, right? So it could be sort of the classic 
covering up one thing raises more suspicion, even though um, maybe the, the whole conspiracy might not be true. Maddie? Yeah, well, I think Redfield just sounds more like a scientist than Fauci ever did. He, he's curious about these things. He's cautious. He doesn't he doesn't uh, claim certainty. Most of what he said and, and has said since the beginning has been about the need for inquiry. And it is very concerning that this, gain, I mean, gain of function, as far as I understand it in a very limited way, is, is basically when a virus is taught to evolve in the lab to infect human tissue more efficiently. And it is concerning that if, if that's the case and that was what was going on and this was the effect of it, um, there should be immediate moratorium on gain of function research. And that's that's really to say nothing about um, how not knowing this at the beginning was a severe disadvantage to frontline healthcare workers in being able to deal with this because they didn't know what they were dealing with and it was uh, ravaging through communities asymptomatically in some cases, uh, causing unexpected inflammatory response in people's blood vessels, major organs. And and this information would have been directly helpful uh, in the pandemic response. So it's very frustrating. And then there's just the simple principle of the matter that it's important uh, to tell the truth about what happened. It's important to seek the truth if you're a scientist. And so much of this was to do with... uh, politics and uh, managing uh, the public psychology during this time or just sort of demagoguery and letting people's egos get get very very inflated here and I think the the contrast between Redfield and, and Fauci is very striking. So MBD let's get everyone on the record here I asked this of, of Jim Garrity uh, a couple episodes ago but we'll, we'll all do it so l- let's rate where we are on whether it's naturally occurring or a lab leak with the caveat, none of us are experts. We're just sort of using a common sense evaluation of of what what we know. So um, if you're a zero, that means you you believe it came from a wet market, came from a bat or pangolin or whatever. If you're a hundred, it means you're total, it came from a lab, no doubt. So, So 50 would be right in the middle. Anything below 50, you're leaning towards the uh, the natural occurring. Anything above, you're leaning towards lab, MBD. Uh, 100. It, I mean, I just think it's, it's nearly morally certain that this came out of the Wuhan lab based on how they acted and uh, in the months preceding the, the full outbreak, how everyone acted in the weeks after the outbreak, um, and the total lack of evidence for the other side. Phil? I'd say about 80%, um, just leaving the option for sort of humility and not um, what we don't know. Maddie? Uh, same reasoning as Phil, but I'll, I'll say 90%. Wow, all right. I was going to be down to 70. I've been talked up. I'm going to uh, match Phil at a... At a 80, I think you have to have that 20% increment, you know, with, there, there's evidence uh, missing, but just everything circumstantially 
points to the lab. Where's the trail from the cave somewhere to, to Wuhan, uh, you know, with people getting sick, you know, it just none of that exists. And um, the the word people would use to they they meant in the media, they meant false by it, but they would say the, the lab leak is unfounded or um, uh, unsubstantiated. But the, the naturally occurring theory is totally unfounded and unsubstantiated. There's nothing. There's nothing to uh, uh, suggest it. And as uh, Jim mentioned in his jolt yesterday, the, the uh, outfit in Taiwan, highly respected in this stuff, has ruled out the, uh, the wet, wet market uh, in, in Wuhan as a source of, of the virus and says it was much more likely just a, a node of community spread. With that, let me just do a quick plug for the upcoming National Review Institute Ideas Summit. NRI does these uh, every two years. They're bang up events always. This one is going to be in Washington, D.C., where they usually are, not always. Thursday, March 30th, and Friday, March 31st. Bunch of great guests, uh, including our own David Bonson, uh, Bill Barr, Tom Cotton. Douglas Murray, Vice President Pence, Vivek Ramaswamy, and a whole bunch of other uh, great and interesting people. There'll be uh, lots of uh, stimulating uh, talk and discussion, and also just great opportunity for fellowship. You will uh, meet lots of interesting people at this event and uh, hopefully make uh, new friends and contacts. Take a start at $750, and that includes, by the way, uh, a big dinner on Thursday night. And if you're interested in, in sponsoring, sponsorship opportunities begin at uh, $10,000 a pop. So uh, please consider signing up today. You can go to nrinstitute.org for more in, uh, information. That's nrinstitute.org for more information. So Maddie Kearns, we had uh, the big news out of CPAC was Trump's speech. We talked about it earlier in the week, but a sub-story was this uh, talk by Michael Knowles of the Daily Wire where he talked about eliminating, I'm going to probably mess it up a little bit here, but you've followed it more closely than I have, so you can uh, fill in the details or correct as necessary, ending transgenderism as a public phenomenon or something like that. And this got a lot of attention. It generated a freak out. Uh, people saying this was eliminationist uh, rhetoric, uh, indication that the right just wants to get rid of all trans people. Jonathan Shate of New York Magazine said it's an indication of the evil, use that word, the, the evil of the conservative position on trans. So what did he say and how do you think about it? Well, what he said, uh, this this isn't verbatim, but what he really said was he started by saying that there's no middle ground when it comes to transgenderism. Either it's true or it's false. And if it's true, it must be true for everybody who claims to be transgender. And if it's false, it must just be false. And if it's false, and given that it's harmful, um, I think his exact words at this point were transgenderism should be eliminated from public life. And then the clause that people conveniently left out was this whole preposterous ideology. So he was very clearly talking about the ideology. It's like an not, ism. He was talking an about ism. He was talking about an ism. Yeah, he said transgenderism, not transgender people, or which I, I think Michael would actually reject the concept of a transgender person because I think he thinks that there is no such thing. There are people who are confused 
about their sex and he he mentioned those people and said for the benefit of of those people in particular we need this we need this ideology out of public life now, so so but what, what what does that mean sorry to interrupt what, what does it mean that there are no transgender people that 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 it, just people can't switch genders like literally it's a i think it's a rejection of the premise basically it, it would be like if we were to if we were to go around saying uh we're children of god right and and you don't believe in god you don't believe in this phenomenon you would say well no there there are people who think they're children of God, but there aren't actual children of God because God isn't real. So it's a, it's a similar thing. You don't believe in transgenderism. You don't believe in this this concept that people have a, a mysterious inner sense, their gender identity. You just reject the whole thing. You say people are male and they're female and some people don't like being male and some people don't like being female. And that's basically it. And there's complicated reasons why they might not like that and we should have compassion, but this transgender thing is is fiction. So basically, it, what what... I immediately thought of was I remembered there was a uh, Oxford Union debate about whether or not religion should be uh, I don't think it was uh, eliminated or eradicated uh, whichever word Michael used it was but it was whether religion has a place in public life and and there was a, a side that one side said it should and one side said it didn't and I just remembered like there was this debate about religion and there were no broadcasters afterwards pretending that like the the proposition for this resolution had argued that religious people should be killed in mass acts of genocide. Everybody understood what th- the point was. The point was, is religion or religious ideology, as however you conceive of it, is this a force for harm in society and therefore should it be excluded from the public square and be this thing that people can practice in private, but we, we're right to disapprove of it. And lots of people think, that it should. And I think that that is a totally reasonable position. If you if you think transgenderism is false and not only false, but really, really harmful, you're obviously going to want it to be uh, out of public schools, out of the media. You're, and, and there was such a time not so long ago. Uh, and I think that a lot of people, Michael included, myself included, think that that was a that was a better time. It was a simpler time. Um, so so, so uh, how is um how does gender dysphoria, which we, we believe is a real thing, right? Yeah. How, mm-hmm. how does that fit into this uh, equation? So gender dysphoria, yeah. So gender dysphoria is, uh, I mean, it's had various names throughout its its diagnostic history, but gender dysphoria is just that category that Michael actually addressed in his speech. People who are very confused and distressed with their sex. So those people, of course, should seek uh, clinical help when when necessary and uh, there there are various safe and effective therapies that have been used for a long time for people with that condition um but the the transgender the way that transgender ideology interacts with that condition is actually just to make it worse uh, it makes it worse by by basically affirming um a delusion in a way that we would consider wholly inappropriate with any other condition be it anorexia or or you know, body dysmorphia. We would say it's very. We don't tell a schizophrenic person that uh, yes, everyone's out to get them. Right, exactly. So, so there was and is a clinically appropriate treatment for that, um, but society adopting this ideology and clinicians adopting this ideology uh, is not an appropriate treatment for that, and so it doesn't help those people. And I think Michael did make that point, and everybody ignored it, but he did make that point mm-hmm. that he is also considering the interests of those people when he says that this ideology is no good. Yeah. So, so MBD 
Uh, obviously, we've gone way beyond being compassionate towards people with with gender dysphoria, and in, in the rare cases where someone ha- has this condition, using the pronouns they they want to uh, uh, aff- affirmatively pushing this idea uh, on society, um, encouraging people to have this belief when they wouldn't have otherwise, and and pushing it in public schools. Yeah, I mean, you know, there was a, um, you know, I was just because <clears throat> I follow news from the British Isles, I saw that um, Ireland was thinking of introducing a bill, you know, to bring uh, transgender identity into primary schools in Ireland. Um, and, you know, people I say, like, this is this is something that exists and, you know, kids should know about it. But of course, like that brings up the question, like, yeah, there are also Maoists and there are Jehovah's Witnesses. How much time should grammar school students be uh, spending on the nature of those identities, uh, the amount of respect owed to those identities, and the possibility that they might, in their heart of hearts, be one of these identities, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, uh, you know, no one would say, like, we need, you know, a big, you know, uh, we need Jehovah's Witnesses to be respected in public school curriculum. Like, uh, after all, and this is true, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses were routinely beheaded in the Third Reich, right? Like, mm-hmm. that actually happened. Uh, they were victims of the worst tyranny of the 20th century. Um, but no one feels that way about Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, so th- there's a kind of... Um, there's absolutely a moral panic happening that there are these special people um, and many of them children who have a special gender that is mysteriously not in evidence physically uh, and that they must be saved by the intervention of these ideologues. Um, So, I, I mean, I think it's... Like, I, I just think this is preposterous. Um, you know, as, as I've written before, when transgenderism was a phenomenon just uh, among adults, uh, where it was, you know, confused people, sad people, or people who just wanted attention, right, and wanted to dress up or were fulfilling some kind of sexual kink while performing in a nightclub or something like that, um, conservatives weren't as... Um, exercised about it you know it was it was more something to look on with with pity or sadness or amusement um but when you're talking about you know carving arm muscle tissue off of prepubescent girls to give them a non-functional phallus um you you know it's time for uh, a swift decisive intervention of common sense so, um, yeah, I mean, this, this stuff has no business being in public schools. Um, you know, I think Michael got, uh, Michael Knowles got a lot of this because just the week before, or two weeks before, uh, his colleague at the Daily Wire, Matt Walsh, had a viral uh, video where he kind of leveled with uh, a famous, you know, trans figure saying, like, you're not attractive you are not a girl 
you never will be one people pity you um you know and kind of was giving a, a kind of tough love intervention um and uh you know there's a there's a bias in american society towards allowing people to to live in their self delusions um right and um but this one is harmful enough that i think it's it's totally appropriate for michael knowles and everyone else to long for the end of it phil yeah i mean i think it's important to um talk about the rhetoric that uh, conservatives use on this issue because i think on most of the the important points overwhelmingly the public is in favor of us if we actually talk about these things if you're talking about stuff like you know, having tampons in men's bathrooms which has become common in college campuses the idea of saying that men could get pregnant and talking about people who menstruate the idea that leah thomas could go from a middling men's swimmer to a champion female swimmer uh, the idea of saying that at kindergarten, it's important to teach people gender ideology. All of those things, I think, are overwhelmingly the public is with um, uh, the conservative position on this. And I, I think that it's that Republicans and conservatives are at their strongest when they talk about that and, and expose the actual absurdity. But when you start to get into people's looks and so forth and mocking people, um, it, it sort of, it becomes just seems like it's just mean and nasty. Uh, and I think is a lot, you know, is a lot, is going to just turn off a lot of people who aren't already a hundred percent with you. And I, I just think it's not particularly healthy. The, I think with the, um, uh, Knowles thing, it seems to me that basically it's a terminology thing where basically he was saying gender ideology, which I think is better because it focuses on, it's clear that you're talking about the ideology. Uh, I think that we got into this a bit during the war on terror stuff where we'd be talking about radical Islam and some people would say Islamism. Um, and then it's sort of like, oh, well, when you say Islamism to somebody who's not following the nuances, the wording as much, it, are they hearing just like, we need to eradicate Islam? If you said, we need to eradicate Islamism. Um, so I always thought it was better to just say radical Islam because it was clear what the, the, the point was. I mean, um, and so in this case, I think it's just better, as I know Maddie does, to talk about gender ideology or transgender ideology. Um, so I just think it's an important point where I think conservatives are winning a lot of battles on and they can win with most of the, I think that even if most of the public may be afraid to say that they agree with us, but if you go, if you sit behind the scenes with people who may be even liberal and they say, oh, when you talk about, well, children who identify as boys and you're talking about first graders right um i i think that most people are just sort of like this has just gone too far and i i think that 
conservatives have to stick to the areas where I think most most people where we could actually convert people and and win allies as opposed to when you get into the nasty because at the end of the day I have no beef and I'm sure most conservatives don't have a beef with individual transgender people we have a beef certainly with 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 transgender people who are trying to get us to deny reality and pose their ideology on us and push that to children that's something to impose you know to oppose but in terms of somebody personally and to to talk about them their looks and people's looks and so forth to me i just feel like that's just mean and less productive Maddie, I've asked it before. I'll ask it again. Exit question to you. We are winning the transgender debate now. Yes or no? Yes, sort of. (laughs) (laughs) MVD. Um, Yes, I think we're... um, You can tell because there's like a, a growing center-left parallel universe who who are taking up all of our arguments barely modified uh, into the world. Um, So this is like the Jonathan Chait, uh, Matt Iglesias types? And and Andrew Sullivan to some degree. um, Yeah, no, he's great. uh, You know, uh, that's when you can tell you're you're winning is when, uh, when that's happening rather than like I, I think we were losing five or six years ago when, you know, some conservatives are saying, like, let's have a compromise on this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Phil. I think we're winning the current battle. I think that there's a danger that we lose the ultimate war just because the left thinks in terms of a very long term um, time frame. I mean, this stuff on gender is you could date back to the 1960s. Um, and they just keep pressing along and maybe I feel like in the the 90s we had a bit of a pushback against the political correctness in the 80s and then it it just sort of exploded again Um, and so I feel like each wave each time we go through this they get pushed back but if you look back at it on the 20 year time frame we've gone more in their direction. Yeah. I mean, they've obviously made uh, major progress on, unfortunately, but I, I do think the tide is turning and we are beginning to win with that. Just let me thank everyone uh, who might be out there and contributed to our webathon. We raised with a very generous uh, matching gift, $220,000 in eight business days or so it was a fantastic uh, success and most people they give you know 50 bucks or so and it really adds up it means a lot so really appreciate uh everyone who gave if you're listening to this message and feeling guilty there is a way to assuage your guilt this webathon is over so sorry you can't you can't do it that way but you can subscribe to nr plus which is another really important way to support our valuable journalism great first-time deals running at any given moment uh, and you can uh, easily join tens of thousands of your fellow NR readers as a member
of NR Plus. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBG, the Doherty household has been obsessed with cheetahs. Yeah, well, it's one of these things. The um, my oldest son, uh, you know, if you have a boy, they all go through phases. There's a, typically a a civil service phase where they love firemen and policemen and get obsessed with that idea. A dinosaur phase. Um, and you collect all the different Jurassic Park dinosaur toys that you can, the target can sell you. Um, but now my, my son is into just nature generally and suddenly he's fascinated by cheetahs. And so we're watching every, every nature documentary that can be found on YouTube about cheetahs. Right. At night. So it doesn't matter what gets killed. It doesn't matter. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> the, the Ibexes, you know, the, um, <laughs> you know, we, we've seen cheetahs running away from from lions. We've seen cheetahs running away from wildebeests or running to them. Uh, it's so, so are, che- are cheetahs? Do they do they hunt in packs or they're solo? Uh, they can they can hunt in packs, um, uh, but sometimes the men hunt solo. Often you'll, okay. you'll find the pack will be like a, a a female and her youngest offspring. Um, well, so what, what I remember from my nature documentary viewing is, is those big cats like that. They got, they got to choose their, uh, their hunts carefully, right? Cause they, they expend so much energy. You, you don't want to, uh, go through the whole exercise and come up empty. Yeah, for sure. So, so let, let that be a lesson to everyone. So Maddie, you had another, uh, notable experience on an airplane somewhere. Yeah, I did. So, um, this is something of a theme with my light items uh, at the editors, but I was recently on a plane with my husband and I am a nervous flyer. I think I've mentioned that before. And so I was, yes, a lot of drinking, I hope. Yeah. So as I was saying there, I was feeling kind of antsy, you know, we're about to go into taxi mode and uh, all of a sudden I hear this siren. Um, and I think like that just like on the plane, on the plane. Um, I think, that that doesn't sound good. So you know, look at uh, look at my husband, and he's like, "Don't worry, I'm sure it'll go off. Like, don't worry, everything's fine." And I look at the air uh, hostess because that's the the first thing I do is like, if they look panicked or confused, yeah. like something's wrong. And um, I look at them, and they look very confused. And so I'm thinking, "Oh my goodness, like there's something wrong with the plane." So I start saying to him, "There's there's something wrong with this plane." I think I think we should go. He's like, "I don't think there's something wrong with the plane." I think everything's fine. I was like, "No, there's something there's something wrong." with the plane <laughs> oh my goodness so anyway i think okay i'll just calm myself down i'll get like a candy out of my bag or something so i i reach into my bag and open the bag and all of a sudden the siren sound gets a lot louder <laughs> and i think oh that's weird so i start rummaging in my bag and right enough uh back from when i was a single woman i had a panic alarm um <laughs> before i had this strong man to protect me and so i pull out the panic alarm and that is the cause of the siren so i start <laughs> my, my immediate feeling is relief. Hooray, there's not something wrong with the plane, but this quickly turns into mortification as I realize everybody is staring at us and I don't know how to turn this thing off. So I then had to get the air hostess come over and, and she went, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> and so I say, oh, uh, I'm so sorry. I don't know how to turn this off. So she takes it to the front of the plane. A whole a whole group of them start like trying to figure out how to turn this thing off. It's good to know it works. Um, she then comes back and she says, uh, so we've we figured out how to turn it off, but uh, we'll give it to you when when we land. <laughs> that's that's funny. So yeah. Well, you were you were panicked. So I was I was panicked exactly. So it sensed it. 
So, Phil Klein, you're a member of the exclusive club that has been able to try the hot new Girl Scout cookie flavor. Yeah, it's totally crazy because there's this, they unveiled this new cookie this year the, called the Raspberry Rally Cookie. And it's become so popular um, and it's in short supply. I guess supply chain affects everyone. And that these $5 boxes are going for as high as $50 on eBay. Some people are buying cases of a dozen for like 400 bucks because there's such a desperate drive for it. Um, so uh, due to a family friend connection, we were able to score a few boxes. So I sampled it and it's kind of interesting. It's basically like a Thin Mint. The architecture is similar to a Thin Mint except um, instead of the cookie inside being a mint wafer, it's a raspberry-flavored cookie enrobed in chocolate. Um, so it's, it's kind of an interesting, intriguing thing, um, but I think I prefer the Thin Mints. It, it basically tastes, the, the best way I describe it is if you've ever had Captain Crunchberry cereal, if you imagine the berries in Captain Crunch berries, if they were covered in chocolate, that's kind of what it tastes like. Yeah, I just I just find it hard to believe you can actually improve on a thin mint. So I've been listening to uh, a YouTube military series, History March, with an E at the end of March. Uh, a, a lot of these battles are are too obscure, I think, to be of, of much interest to, to people. But when you get, you know, a real good famous one, it's it's really a clear explication of how these things went down and the consequences of various maneuvers and, and uh, what what became uh, came politically of these uh, epic fights and has a, has a wonderful narrator who would never dare do one of these videos with a voice sounding like mine. Uh, today, let me mention, actually, th these were okay light items, but we got a much better one that I've been meaning to mention but have neglected to, which is that uh, Sarah, who's been taking flying lessons, did a cross-country flight, which you should not take that term literally, because it wasn't literally, you know, from New York to Los Angeles, but was from from one one city to, to another. So, Sarah, congratulations, and how did it go? Thanks so much, Rich. It was awesome. It was such a cool experience. It was actually more fun to think about it after the fact. I was really nervous in the moment, um, but I enjoyed telling the story afterwards. But yeah, I, I uh, got to the airport early and did all my flight planning with my instructor. This was the first time I, I did one of these. I have to do a couple different ones um, in order to qualify for my official license. And uh, so I got it all planned out and we, we took off and it took us about 30 minutes to get there because we had a really nice tailwind. And I did not have a very good landing. My uh, my instructor had to help out. I mean, the landing was fine because my instructor was there, but Crosswinds and I are, are not friends yet. So uh, so, yeah. so I, I propose, I think the perfect pairing would be you and Maddie up in a plane. <laughs> you have a, a nervous pilot and a nervous passenger and the passenger would have justification finally to be nervous. See how it go down. Yeah. Sarah, but, please, do not, please do not be offended, but uh, I'm going to politely decline that oh, offer. No, no, no. I, I don't want to take, I plan to not take anyone up for a long time after I get my license, but no, it was awesome. it was a really awesome experience, and I'm looking forward to my next cross country. Fantastic. Well, with that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? 
Uh, my pick is an Andy McCarthy piece from early this week, making sense of the Capitol riot tapes. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm friends with Tucker and, uh, I'm, I'm happy to say, um, we actually, we, we, I interviewed him at the last NRI event. Um, and I, I think he does a public service by pushing back the way he does against the left's narratives. Um, but, uh, I think Andy McCarthy is right in this piece, uh, and right in the spirit in which he approaches it. Um, saying that like, well, in, you know, there's these new tapes of January 6th, it's good to see this evidence, but it doesn't really overturn our understanding of what happened that day. Um, it may overturn some overheated narratives pushed by the left, but, um, you know, this was a contemptible riot that should never have happened. And the people who participated in it deserve prosecution, uh, even when, you can find clips of them moving around peacefully. They were, they broke in and trespassed uh, and did so to interrupt the function of the government. Maddie Kearns, what's your pick? Well, that was my pick, Rich. So um, (laughs) I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to double down and say that I, I think Andy's such an asset to NR and he is so thorough and so sensible and consistently sensible. And it's just, it's really very helpful, especially if you've not been following something particularly closely to to have Andy's take. So I yeah, also no, recommend that. No, Noah Rothman also did a, a really uh, a detailed analysis. Phil Klein, do you have something else as a pick? Yes, I have, uh, which I also agree that Andy's piece was great, but I am going to pick um, a Dan McLaughlin piece. Democrats aim at Walgreens, but their target is democracy. Um For those who haven't been following, basically, uh, Gavin Newsom um, has decided that the um, state of California isn't going to do any business with Walgreens. He canceled the contract over the Walgreens decision in response to a letter from a Republican attorneys general to say that they weren't going to sell abortion pills in certain Republican states. And... um, He's trying to pressure them from the other side. And uh, Dan just sort of points out all the attacks on DeSantis for, uh, from the left, including from Gavin Newsom, in saying that uh, DeSantis was a fascist, all this stuff, um, for his battles with corporations. And yet DeS- what Newsom, when Newsom does it, it's portrayed as this sort of heroic stand. Um, And so what it says is that the Democrats are perfectly willing to um, use the government power as a cudgel to try to get uh, in the culture war and to try to get uh, corporations to behave more like they like, but they're angry when a Republican does it. Now, personally, I wish nobody would do this and this wouldn't happen, but I think Dan... Um, sort of points out uh, just Newsom's hypocrisy really well. So my pick is actually your piece, Phil, by budget includes $5.5 trillion in tax hikes. If you just wanted to read one piece about Biden's budget, and it'd be understandable if that was your impulse, uh, th- this this was the, the piece to read. 
uh, comprehensive and cogent. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or account this game without the express written permission of National Review Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thanks to Phil. Thanks to Maddie. Thanks to MBD. Thanks to ExpressVPN. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.